and I'm your brother, Fireman Diesel Ogaya, and welcome to the Class War Battlefield Podcast. When I started this show in 2011, my goal was to inform, inform, inform. Obviously, the show has evolved, a lot of new topics, a lot of new thoughts, taking on metaphysics, some spirituality, hitting you with all types of things that you may have never heard of, and some that you have. It's always lively. But now I'm coming to you to ask you to help me prolong this podcast. For years, I have been producing this podcast for free on your behalf. I am now coming to you to ask you to support this work. Whatever you can do, please do. And now, the definition. Definition. Democrats in Congress have introduced a proposal called the Green New Deal. A plan to tackle climate change by overhauling our transportation systems, upgrading our power grids, and shifting to clean energy like wind and solar. There's a lot of cool stuff in here, but I am not an energy policy expert, so I have questions. How would these ideas work in practice? How quickly could we get them done? Are they enough to avoid the impending heat death of the planet? So to find the answers, I did what every American does when they want to know more about public policy. I tried to watch the news. The so-called Green New Deal. Why do those three words create such anger from Republicans and even some anxiety among Democrats? Even House Speaker Nancy Pelosi had concerns. Republicans aim to make the Green New Deal a key 2020 campaign issue. You say Democrats are in a way helping Donald Trump. Green New Deal is going to be a flashpoint. Did Democrats give Republicans a huge 2020 gift? The Republicans see it as a key to victory for them, is it? God damn it. I have watched hours of segments about the Green New Deal, and none of them actually explained how it might work. Instead, they focused on the politics. Is it gonna pass? Does Pelosi like it? What did Trump tweet about it? Everything, except, is it a good idea? Are you concerned the perception of the Democratic Party is gonna move too far to the left? Turns out there's a name for this type of news coverage. It's called tactical framing, and it's making us all too cynical to solve big problems before it's too late. This Sunday, the Democratic divide. Some progressives are pushing hard for a Green New Deal, but other Democrats worry they're being impractical. Is there a risk that Democrats maybe overplay their hand, rile up the Republican base, and you say, look, socialism, and you know, some of these unrealistic yeah. uh, ideas? Tactical framing sounds like when you crop your problem areas out of a Tinder photo. Or video. Or a video. But it's actually an approach to news coverage that focuses on strategy over substance. So instead of asking, is this new policy proposal a good idea, Tactical Framing asks, is it popular? Can it pass? How will it play in the next election? The discussion is focused on the players and the implications for them and their political careers, not the policy or its capacity to solve a problem. Kathleen Hall Jameson coined the phrase tactical framing, and she argues that this obsession with strategy is making it hard for us to understand big policy ideas. Ask yourself how much of the coverage of the Green New Deal has told you what specifically is in it. Other Republicans said the plan sounded more like communist economic doctrine. You probably have no idea what the Green New Deal is. You probably have some sense that it has to do with climate, climate change, but you probably don't don't know much beyond that. It is hard to argue with her. Look at some of the headlines from the Green New Deal debate. Is the Green New Deal smart politics for Democrats? 
Green New Deal divides Democrats on climate change. Seven reasons Democrats won't pass a Green New Deal. We're talking about the fate of the human race here, but the focus is still on the politics. Could the fight over this plan divide the Democratic Party? Well, Republicans succeeded painting it as an unrealistic boondoggle. Notice when you're saying that, you're not asking, well, what is the problem they're trying to address? Is this a viable solution? This framing makes us less informed, but it also makes us more cynical. Jameson and her research partner ran an experiment where they gave people three different types of news stories about a Philadelphia mayoral race. Don't tune out, I will make this quick. The first group got stories that focused on the issues. What problems were the candidates trying to solve and how did they propose to fix those problems? The second group got stories that focused on tactics, how the candidates were trying to win over voters. And the third got a mix, stories that started with a tactical frame and then discussed substance. Their findings were woof. In the second and third groups, the ones who got tactical framing, the news had activated their cynicism. They were more likely than the first group to say that the candidates were promising things they couldn't deliver or that the situation was hopeless anyway. They were also less likely to remember basic information about the policy proposals, even if what they saw included real policy analysis. We find that even with that good information there, public's less likely to learn it because the tactical frame creates a lens on it that says they're not actually going to do it anyway. This is really all about politics. Now trust your political instincts based on your ideology. Jameson and her research partner published a book about their findings called The Spiral of Cynicism, which is surprisingly not a book about my dating life. In it, they argued that this cynicism lingers even after the tactical framing is gone. A few days after the experiment, the participants were asked to react to an excerpt from a debate between the candidates. But the ones who had been exposed to tactical framing still reacted cynically. And what that said to us was that the stimulus in news was so strong that when you got no more cues to be cynical, to be tactical, nonetheless, you were seeing the race through that lens. Now, maybe your reaction is... So what? Of course watching the news makes you cynical. Congress is too gridlocked to get anything done. Hopelessness is the correct response. But tactical framing makes it harder to break that gridlock by causing us to look at policy through a partisan lens. Most of the time we're not partisans. I know that sounds surprising, but most of the time we're not. But I can activate my sense of my partisanship and the partisanship of an audience by focusing on a frame that makes that more important. A huge amount of the coverage of the Green New Deal has focused on how Republicans might gain an advantage with voters by attacking it in 2020. The Republicans can use this as a weapon. If you look at the political implications, it is easy to see why Republicans see advantage in this. And all of that might be true, but it also begs the question, if the only thing voters know about a bill is that Republicans hate it and Democrats love it, the Republicans painting this as unworkable socialism, loony, socialist fever dream. They're more likely to react to that bill along party lines. In an environment in which news covers things through a political lens, Republicans versus Democrats, left versus right, it makes it harder for people who might be trying to find common ground in the middle. That tactical frame ends up becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's covered through a partisan lens, so we react through a partisan lens, which makes partisanship the only thing that matters. It makes us political analysts, it makes us pundits, but it doesn't make us very good voters. This exact thing happened on Meet the Press a few weekends ago. Trump had tweeted a bullshit claim that the Green New Deal would somehow ban cars, cows, and the military. How would you ban a cow? This would have been a great chance to explain what the Green New Deal actually does. To let voters decide for themselves if upgrading our power grid or modernizing our transportation systems is a good idea. But Chuck Todd wanted to talk about 2020. Uh, David, obviously the president's team sees a re-election opening. Oh yeah, I mean, it's huge. And it's a real big pothole, I think, for the Democrats. And then you've got Donald Trump and the Make America Great Again slogan against the way he brands it, Make America Socialist for the first time. That is powerful, especially with those white, middle-class, blue-collar Democrats. 
a lot of Republicans and moderate Democrats might actually like what's in this thing. But we'll never know because the bat segment on TV is telling them this is a debate about socialism. It was Yes We Can, but I'm wondering if now it's Yes We Can become a socialist country. And I know that sounds alarmist. I have met the press and I was deeply disappointed. You can't smoke in here. Look, maybe things are hopeless. Maybe we're too angry and divided to stop the planet from overheating. We won't actually know that until people understand what our options are, until we're given a chance to judge solutions on their merit rather than their political popularity. If we set up a coverage structure that minimizes the likelihood that the public will actually understand enough about the substance to register informed opinion, we minimize the likelihood that it will pass at all. The point of political journalism should be to snap us out of our cynicism, to remind us of the magnitude of the problems we face. Most people who are thinking about their children right now, I'm sorry I'm getting emotional, but this is an emergency in this country. It's an emergency on this planet. And to teach us what our options might be. Is the new Green can. Deal going to Absolutely. solve the problem? We can't say it's too aspirational, it's the planet. That's a really important conversation. Our planet depends on it, but it's one that gets shut down every time a newsroom decides to focus on tactics. What you're seeing though, I mean, this is the pull of the 2020 Democratic primary process. I mean, this sure. is where it's headed. The Thank you to my colleague from New York, Representative Espayat, for holding this, um, this incredibly important hour on not just the climate crisis, but the Green New Deal in particular. And as I was preparing for this evening, um, I would be remiss but to say that last night we had a national democratic debate and not a single question was asked about our climate crisis. Right now, the, the global consensus, the IPCC report coming out of the UN is sounding the alarm on what will happen if we do not keep emissions down to contain our warming levels below 1.5 degrees Celsius. But if you look at today, we are on track to hit three degrees Celsius by 2100. This can bring unprecedented chaos to our order. Throughout this entire year, as we've discussed the Green New Deal, I've noticed that there's been an awful lot of misinformation about what is inside this resolution. A tremendous amount of wild claims, everything from saying we're seeking to ban airplanes to ending ice cream. And as a consequence, I've realized that many of my colleagues have never even read the resolution that they're speaking on. They haven't opened a single word of it. And it's actually only about, I have it right in front of me, just 14 pages long. So I have decided that since my colleagues, some of my colleagues across the aisle, could not, for some reason, read the resolution, that perhaps this hour would be spent best reading it to them for the public record. And so today, what I would like to do, read the Green New Deal resolution for all those who are interested, who may want to fire this up on C-SPAN, or who may want to sit in the audience today. Resolution on HRES 109, recognizing the duty of the federal government to create a Green New Deal. Whereas the October 2018 report entitled Special Report on Global Warming of 1.5 Degrees Celsius by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the November 2018 Fourth National Climate Assessment Report found that one, 
Human activity is the dominant cause of observed climate change over the past century. Two, a changing climate is causing sea levels to rise and an increase in wildfires, severe storms, droughts, and other extreme weather events that threaten human life, healthy communities, and critical infrastructure. Three, global warming at or above two degrees Celsius beyond pre-industrialized uh, levels will cause a mass migration from the regions most affected by climate change. B, more than $500 billion in lost annual economic output in the United States by the year 2100. C, wildfires that by 2050 will annually burn at least twice as much forest area in the western United States than was typically burned by wildfires in the years preceding 2019. D, a loss of more than 99% of all coral reefs on Earth. E, more than 350 million more people to be exposed globally to deadly heat stress by 2050. And F, a risk of damage to $1 trillion of public infrastructure and coastal real estate in the United States. And four, global temperatures must be kept below 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrialized levels to avoid the most severe impacts of a changing climate, which will require A, global reductions in greenhouse gas emissions from human sources of 40 to 60% from 2010 levels by 2030 and B, net zero global emissions by 2050. Whereas because the United States has historically been responsible for a disproportionate amount of, gre of greenhouse gas emissions, having emitted 20% of global greenhouse gas emissions through 2014, and has a high technological capacity. The United States must take a leading role in reducing emissions through economic transformation. Whereas the United States is currently experiencing several related crises, with one, life expectancy declining while basic needs, such as clean air, clean water, healthy food, and adequate health care, housing, transportation, and education, are inaccessible to a significant portion of the U.S. population to a four-decade trend of wage stagnation, de-industrialization, and anti-labor policies that has led to, A, hourly wages overall stagnating since the 1970s despite increased worker productivity, B, the third worst level of, of socioeconomic mobility in the developed world before the Great Recession, and C, C the erosion of earning and bargaining power of workers in the United States and D, inadequate resources for public sector workers to confront the challenges of climate change at local, state, and federal levels, and three, the greatest income inequality since the 1920s, with A, the top 1% of earners accruing 91% of gains in the first few years of economic recovery after the Great Recession. B, a large racial wealth divide amounting to a difference of 20 times more wealth between the average white family and the average black family. And C, a gender earnings gap that results in women earning approximately 80% as much as men at the median. 
whereas climate change, pollution, and environmental destruction have exacerbated systemic racial, regional, social, environmental, and economic injustices, referred to in this preamble as systematic injustices, by disproportionately affecting indigenous peoples, communities of color, migrant communities, deindustrialized communities, depopulated rural communities, the poor, low-income workers, women, the elderly, the unhoused, people with disabilities, and youth referred to in this preamble as frontline and vulnerable communities. Whereas climate change constitutes a direct threat to the national security of the United States, one, by impacting economic, environmental, and social stabilities of countries and communities around the world, and two, by acting as a threat multiplier. Whereas the federal government led mobilizations during World War II and the Green New Deal created the great and the New Deal apology, apologies created middle created the middle class that the United States the biggest middle class the United States has ever seen but many members of frontline and vulnerable communities were excluded from many of the economic and societal benefits of those mobilizations and whereas the House of Representatives recognizes that a new social that a new national, social, industrial, and economic mobilization on a scale not seen since World War II and the New Deal era is a historic opportunity. One, to create millions of good, high-wage jobs in the United States. Two, to provide unprecedented levels of prosperity and economic security for all peoples of the United States. And three, to, inter to counteract systemic injustices. Now, therefore, be it resolved that it is the sense of the House of Representatives that, one, it is the duty of the federal government to create a Green New Deal. A, to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions through a fair and just transition for all communities and workers. B, to create millions of good, high-wage jobs and ensure prosperity and economic security for all people in the United States. C, to invest in the infrastructure and industry of the United States to sustainably meet the challenges of the 21st century. D, to secure for all people of the United States for generations to come. One, clean water. Two, climate and community resiliency. Three, healthy food. Four, access to nature. And five, a sustainable environment. And E, to promote justice and equity by stopping current preventing future and repairing historic oppression of indigenous peoples, communities of color, migrant communities, deindustrialized communities, depopulated rural communities, the poor, low-income workers, women, the elderly, the unhoused, people with disabilities, and youth, referred to in this resolution as frontline and vulnerable communities. Two, the goals described in subparagraphs A through E of paragraph one, referred to in this resolution as the Green New Deal goals, should be accomplished through a 10-year national mobilization, referred to in this resolution as the Green New Deal mobilization, that will require the following goals and projects. 
A, building resiliency against climate change-related disasters, such as, such as extreme weather, including by leveraging funding and providing investments for community-defined projects and strategies. B, repairing and upgrading the infrastructure in the United States, including one, by eliminating pollution and greenhouse gas emissions as much as technologically feasible. Two, by guaranteeing universal access to clean water. Three, by reducing the risks posed by climate impacts. And four, by ensuring that any infrastructure bill considered by Congress addresses climate change. C, meeting 100% of the power demand in the United States through clean, renewable, and zero emission energy sources, including one, by dramatically expanding and upgrading renewable power sources, and B, by deploying, by deploying new capacity. D, building or upgrading energy-efficient distributed and smart power grids and ensuring affordable access to electricity. E, upgrading all existing buildings in the United States and building new buildings to achieve maximum energy efficiency, water efficiency, safety, affordability, comfort, and durability, including through electrification. F, spurring massive growth in clean manufacturing in the United States and removing pollution and greenhouse gas emissions from manufacturing and industry as much as is technologically feasible, including by expanding renewable energy manufacturing and investing in existing manufacturing and industry. G, working collaboratively with farmers and ranchers in the United States to remove pollution and greenhouse gas emissions from the agricultural sector as much as is technologically feasible, including one, by supporting family farming, and two, by investing in sustainable farming and land use practices that increase soil health, and three, by building a more sustainable food system that ensures universal access to healthy food. H, overhauling transportation systems in the United States to remove pollution and greenhouse gas emissions from the transportation sector as much as technologically feasible, including through investment in one, zero emission vehicle infrastructure and manufacturing, two, clean, affordable, and accessible public transit, and three, high-speed rail. I, mitigating and managing the long-term adverse health, economic, and other effects of pollution and climate change, including by providing funding for community-defined projects and strategies. J, removing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere and reducing pollution by restoring natural ecosystems through proven low-tech solutions that increase soil carbon storage, such as land preservation, and afforestation. K, restoring and protecting threatened, endangered, and fragile ecosystems through locally appropriate and science-based projects that enhance biodiversity and support climate resiliency. L, cleaning up existing hazardous waste and abandoned sites, ensuring economic development and sustainability to those sites. M, identifying other emission and pollution sources and creating solutions to remove them and N, promoting international exchange of technology, expertise, products, funding, and services with the aim of making the United States the international leader on climate action and to help other countries achieve a Green New Deal. 
Three, a Green New Deal must be developed through transparent and inclusive consultation, collaboration, and partnership with frontline and vulnerable communities, labor unions, worker cooperatives, civil society groups, academia, and businesses. And four, to achieve the Green New Deal goals and mobilization, a Green New Deal will, will require the following goals and projects. A, providing and leveraging in a way that ensures the public receives appropriate ownership stakes and returns on investment, adequate capital through the community grant, through community grants, public banks, and other public financing, technical expertise, supporting policies and other forms of assistance to communities, organizations, federal, state, and local government agencies, and businesses working on the Green New Deal mobilization. B, ensuring that the federal government takes into account the complete environmental and social costs and impacts of emissions through one, existing laws, two, new policies and programs, and three, ensuring that frontline and vulnerable communities shall not be adversely affected. C, providing resources, training, and high-quality education, including higher education, to all people of the United States with a focus on frontline and vulnerable communities so that all people of the United States may be full and equal participants in the Green New Deal mobilization. D, making public investments in the research and development of new clean and renewable energy technologies and industries. E, directing investments to spur economic development, deepen and diversify industries and businesses in local and regional economies, and build wealth and community ownership, while prioritizing high-quality job creation and economic, social, and environmental benefits in frontline and vulnerable communities and deindustrialized communities that may otherwise struggle with the transition away from greenhouse gas-intensive industries. F, ensuring the use of democratic and participatory processes that are inclusive of and led by frontline and vulnerable communities and workers to plan, implement, and administer the Green New Deal mobilization at the local level. G, ensuring the, that the Green New Deal mobilization creates high-quality union jobs that pay prevailing wages, hire local workers, offer training and advancement opportunities, and guarantees wage and benefit parities for workers affected by that transition. H, guaranteeing a job with a family-sustaining wage, adequate family, and medical leave, paid vacations, and retirement security to all people of the United States. I, strengthening and protecting the right of all workers to organize, unionize, and collectively bargain free of coercion, intimidation, and harassment. J, strengthening and enforcing labor, workplace health and safety, anti-discrimination, and wage and hour standards across all employers, industries, and sectors. K, enacting and enforcing trade rules, procurement standards, and border adjustments with strong labor and environmental protections. I, to stop the transfer of jobs and pollution overseas, and two, one, to stop the transfer of jobs and pollution overseas, and two, to grow domestic manufacturing in the United States. L, ensuring that public lands, waters, and oceans are protected and that eminent domain is not abused. 
am obtaining the free, prior, and informed consent of Indigenous peoples for all decisions that affect Indigenous peoples and their traditional territories, honoring all treaties and agreements with, with Indigenous peoples, and protecting and enforcing the sovereignty and land rights of Indigenous peoples. And ensuring a commercial environment where every business person is free from unfair competition and domination by domestic or international monopolies. And O, providing all people of the United States with high quality health care, affordable, safe, and adequate housing, economic security, and clean water, clean air, healthy and affordable food, and access to nature. That is every word in the Green New Deal. And I want every person in this body and across the country to ask themselves why this is so controversial. Why is healthcare for every American so controversial? Why is protecting our planet for the next generation so controversial? Why is dignified labor and protections at work so controversial? Why is taking on the fossil fuel industry so, so common? Because for years, we have prioritized the pursuit of profit at any and all human and environmental cost. And I humbly ask my colleagues and my country to question our priorities for once. Because our priorities have led to an unprecedented amount of income inequality, to millions of people living in poverty, and many more that feel unstable in their economic life. So please, as a moral, economic, and political prerogative, I humbly ask our country to care for our planet. Thank you very much, and I yield. storm is rising against the privileged minority of the earth. This is why I say it's liberty or it's death. It's freedom for everybody or freedom for nobody. This is an NBC News hotline special report. We're at a turning point in the history of this nation. We need to stand for freedom. There's an escalating authoritarianism and even a creeping fascism. Freedom it's precious. If we don't fight for it, you lose it. This much is clear. We must rebel. This is our country. We have always lived in it. We were happy. Then you came. We have to protect ourselves. We have to save our country. We have to fight for what is ours. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your brother, by Mary Deese. Oh, God, yeah. And welcome to this Class 4 Battlefield Podcast episode. Why did the... Or should I say, why has... The Green New Deal not caught on as it should have. Answer, people do not understand what the New Deal was. 
I have been thinking about creating this episode for, seriously, for the last two years, but I suppose I would have to go back to 2019. The summer of 2019, after I had moved here into this new apartment, uh, I was conducting some research on the New Deal. And I came across a couple of pages that changed the way that I looked at the New Deal and changed the way that I looked at Roosevelt. The first, um, which I'd have to actually look back up because... uh, <laughs> a while ago, I uh, I caught a virus in my browser, and uh, I had to uninstall it, wipe uh, the root kit from it, and then start over again. And unfortunately, it was uh, it was one of the major bookmarked pages that I had saved, and all of that stuff got scrapped. Uh, but anyway. What the what the website was was an overview of all of the laws and programs that were started during that were started and passed and proposed even during the Roosevelt administrations. Those that that website gave me a view on the new deal that or about the new deal that I had never had before there were literally a hundred or more there had to be more laws that were passed and there were many more that were proposed that created the foundational structure for the New Deal. And as I was looking through it, it took me a couple of days to look through a lot of it uh, because there was that much on the site. But as I was looking through it, I, uh, I couldn't help but to think how intricately linked to uh, programs that would become popular in the 50s and 60s, or should I say popularly used in the 50s and 60s, uh, some of these things were. And how so many of the uh, laws that were passed changed the structure of the economic realities that most Americans would feel. However, they did so so brilliantly and so subtly that most folks had no idea that they existed. There was a whole lot of things. It was kind of like, the, you know, I, I talked about having to wipe the root kit for uh, when I, after I got the, uh, the virus. Well, it's sort of like what Roosevelt did was he wrote and proposed legislation, or his administration did anyway, that would mess with the root kit for the country. 
it would go into the roots of what the country was and it would reconfigure everything and then allow the programs to be built off of that. And for those of you who don't understand what I'm saying there, it's like messing with the genetic structure of what the United States was at that time. And then allowing everything else to build around it. My appreciation of the work that was done in that administration came from all from being able to read through a lot of these legislative victories and propose and uh, proposals. Now, to be fair, I already had a different view of the New Deal anyway. Um, years ago, I was reading. I think it was Arthur Schlesinger who had written multiple volumes on the New Deal. And I read through the first one and a little bit of the second one. Um, and basically, so the first book has to do with the old order. Has it, it takes a look at what was wrong prior to the New Deal. And then the second book, if I remember correctly, has to do with the New Deal. And reading a few chapters into that, the viewpoint of how liberals, because Lessinger was a liberal, viewed the view, excuse me, how progressive liberals, because he was more of a progressive liberal than just a, a moderate liberal or a conservative liberal, um, how progressive liberals viewed the New Deal. Um, that book gave me a very thorough understanding very early of why the New Deal was the New Deal. Now, one of the things he didn't point out, but I, I realized from watching black and white movies, uh, the reason Roosevelt called it the New Deal wasn't because of how we interpret it today. Roosevelt called the New Deal the New Deal because the term deal was used as slang among a lot of the average, everyday, white Americans of the time. And so, deal was usually something that people would use in the following way. Here's the deal. And usually... When that was done, it was a superior talking to an underling or somebody who had no power when it came to how they interacted with the person. Realizing this, Roosevelt named, or somebody named it, I, actually I don't believe it was Roosevelt, I think it was one of his advisors who named it the New Deal, they they recognized by calling it the New Deal, tapping into popular fervor, they could gain points culturally. Culturally. By naming it this and then distributing it widely. And people understood it. People widely understood it. Because, you know, and... and 
they embraced it because they understood it. The reason they understood it was because, well, many things, but people widely use the word. And so that needs to be something that I, I, I stress it here because oftentimes, 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 especially when it comes to Democrats, they don't utilize popular words. So, for instance, when I, you know, years ago, I talked about the conversation that I had with a conservative, and I talked to him about being anti-abortion and yet pro-life at the same time, and then I broke it down for him. There's no law that says you can't use pro-life in the way that I talked about it. And in fact, people should be using it in the way that I talked about it, because life is life. It's not just about abortions. Hell, it technically has nothing to do with abortions. But I digress. Um, the second website that really changed the way that I viewed the um, Roosevelt's administrations was the Franklin Delano Roosevelt Library. On the FDR Library website, in their archive tab, they have done something that most places have not done. They have provided PDF files that you can download to your heart's desire of hundreds of pre-presidential and presidential speeches, statements, and the like. They also have a robust, thorough catalog of um, audio and sometimes I think even video for some of them of various speeches and statements and what have you, uh, pre-presidential and also presidential. How did this change the way that I looked at Roosevelt? One, I went, y'all know me. Y'all know, I have no problem spending hours going through and days and weeks spend, you know, going through an archive. I do not care. I will do it. And, you know, all I have to do is just keep reminding myself I do need to drink water and I do need to eat food and I do need to sleep for a few hours. And then it's right back into it. I went through literally hundreds of the arc uh, of, of those files. In fact, in fact, I got so into it, I wrote the archivist because I thought there was one that said it was for something. And I was like, yeah, I've been through like most of these pages and I don't see what, you know, you're saying is there. So do you think you could check it out? It was there. It just was way, way, way towards the end. Anyway, um, what, when you read through FDR's speeches and statements and the like, you, you see completely how FDR had a vision of teaching people how government worked, one, teaching people why they needed to know how government worked, two, and then teaching people what was expected of them as citizens and what was expected of the public servants. Further, you see this incredible vision that he had as to 
seeing wholly all of the interlocking connected pieces within the power system and how those interconnected pieces could be rearranged to enable a lot more people to prosper, literally prosper from the hard work that they they put in each and every day to make those interlocking pieces not only work, but produce power within them. Not only work, but produce power within them. Because you have to, see, this is something that we don't understand about power. Power is something, especially when you're talking about about social structures and institutions and everything. You have to um, give power to them, or else they're just going to be there, and they're not going to have, power is not going to be there. You have to give power to them. And you give power to them through allegiance. You give power to them by functioning within them. You give uh, power to them by by uh, giving people the ability who are within them to set the parameters in which you work, in which you operate, in which you go out and do the things that you do every day. That is how power is produced. But you have to understand, power is only as good as the people who observe it. Not the people who produce it, it's the people who observe it. Long as you have respect for those power centers, those power centers are the power centers. And it's not just enough to say that you have it. There's, you know, as I just talked about a few moments ago, there's actions that have to go with that. There's thought that have to go with that. There's allegiance that has to go with that. FDR understood this. And his goal was to reorient how the, the, the American citizen, particularly white people, position themselves to power and how power should position themselves according to the United States citizenry. You can read through his writings and you can see that this was a man who actually had a vision for this country. You can also see where what I was talking about earlier when it came to the New Deal was real to him. He acknowledged that the way things were done in the past were not going to work anymore and a new course had to be set. And you see this in his writings. Now, one of the pet peeves that I have one of the pet peeves that I have, and I'm not going to stay on this long, but I have to mention it here. As I was reading through his, um, his speeches, I read through a number of them. One, many of those speeches are quite extensive. I mean, they are quite extensive. He was the governor of New York before he was the president of the United States. And all of the things that I talked about with him teaching the citizenry and all that stuff, all of that was, was true when he was the governor of New York, too. But my pet peeve is this, and I think I've mentioned this before, so 
you know, those of you who've been listening for a while, you've probably heard me say this. On my bookshelf, I have something called the new, a book titled The New Order, or My New Order. It is a, a old book. And I mean, it's old. This thing, I think, was published in the 30s. And it is a large volume. Y'all might have heard about this because of Donald Trump also has this book. And it is a book full of Hitler's speeches. You may be wondering, why the heck do I have it? I have it because, and I mean this sincerely, I first came across this listening to um, old Mae Russell tapes back in 2014. She made a mention of it. Those of you who do not know who Mae Brussel, uh, Brussel was, she was a conspiracy researcher, not a conspiracy theorist, but a conspiracy researcher, who did an amazing amount of work, especially when it came to tracking the connections of the powerful. She was a wealthy woman who, after JFK died, dedicated her life to, to researching first his assassination, and then as things progressed through the 60s and 70s, much more of those weird things that were going on. And she used to do this program called, um, I think it was International World Watchers. And the the tapes are still out. And it, the woman did a lot of great work. Anyway, anyway, anyway. I came across it, and I thought about buying it. At the time, it was like 30 bucks, And I talked myself out of doing it. The book kept coming up, though. And it was still there for 30 bucks, And I talked myself out of doing it. Finally, in um, early 2017, I finally was like, yeah, let me buy this thing. By then, it was 65 I dropped the money on it anyway and bought it. Um, Donald Trump has read this book. It's one of the few books he has read, and he enjoys it. Uh, but anyway, looking at this book, it's over 1,000 pages. I thought to myself, why... Don't we have a similar book containing FDR speeches? I did some research. There actually used to be books containing FDR speeches and statements and stuff, especially from when he was president. Uh, but it's out of print. Now, my new order went back into print, I think in 2017, because people were starting to look for it because... Folks knew Donald Trump was reading it, so they wanted to know what Donald Trump was actually reading. So it went back into print in, 20, uh, in 2017, I think. We need, we need FDR's speeches compiled in a similar volume to be published again. Because once you see really where that man's mind was and how he talked to the average citizen... It really destroys the myth that all he was after was these programs. It wasn't just about the programs. It was much, much, much more bigger than that. I was able to, by the way, when I was doing my research on it, I was able to find older books, multiple volumes of his speeches and things like that. But... Um, it, it should be back in print because, folks, we should be learning from this stuff. We should be learning from this stuff. But I digress here. 
if you yourself give some time to just looking through these speeches, you realize, again, like I started saying earlier, that Delano, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt had this amazing vision that he was acting from. There was, there's a book that I haven't gotten yet um, about uh, FDR's brain trust. And it's a book that was written in the 1940s. I found it. It's quite expensive. It's over 100 bucks, but I'm going to get it. Uh, I, I am, in the next couple of um, months, I, w- I, I will be dropping 100 bucks on it. Why? Because as part of the book, book uh, series that I mentioned earlier that has actually been published containing uh, FDR speeches and statements and things like that. There's a ton of other papers. A ton of other papers that are also published in those volumes. And to understand his speeches, you got to understand some of the communications and some of the ideas that were being bantered or bantered around the administration. And so you got to understand the people who Roosevelt surrounded himself with. Now, I don't want to get too far off into the weeds with this because um, it's really only of interest to people who are policy prescribers, people who create policy, people who, who write policy. Now, you and I, the average citizen, we have been scared off of the idea that we should be interested in these things. And so when, if I want to really go deep into talking about policy with you, and look, I'm not saying that I do, because um, I'm just becoming familiar with that. I mentioned, um, actually, I don't know, I don't believe I ever published that episode. There was an episode that I recorded last year where I was talking about my introduction to the idea of policy. And I don't believe I ever published that episode. Maybe I might. But what I said in that episode was that I had come across books that introduced me to the idea of policy. And not only policy, but how policy was created. Not only how policy was created, but the idea that policy is a process. Creating policy is a process. Um, Administrating policy is a process. Distributing policy throughout this country is a process. But what are we told about making laws? What are we told about making policy? It's kind of like a sausage. You don't want to necessarily see it made. That's a lie. That's a lie. Yeah, it's not going to be as clean as you think it is, and it's probably going to make you sick to your stomach, but you still need to know. But I ain't going to get too far off in this, because I don't need to. If you really want to understand even a microcosm of what was happening in those policy meetings, in those papers that were being passed around, look through... Um, the FDR library start in 20 and 20 in 1930 and move forward and move forward. It'll blow your mind. 
It is, by the way, this inability to stomach policy process, the policy-making process. It is the inability, and really, let's be frank, the encouragement of this inability to stomach the policy-making process that also contributed to our inability and a lot of people's inability to get behind the Green New Deal. In that, in that episode that I never published, I talked about this book that I had come across. And uh, it's funny because I was thinking I was going to end up talking about it, but I was like, eh, maybe not. The book is titled, The Legislative Drafter's Desk Reference. Now, understand something, ladies and gentlemen. Understand something. A friend of mine who has been to D.C., and I really want to go to D.C. I've, that's one of the places I've always wanted to go. Um, he said to me... You don't, this was, this was 12 or 13 years ago. He goes, you know, you don't understand the, um, the way that information in D.C. is distributed. And I'm like, what do you mean? Because we were talking about um, his trip to D.C. and how he liked it and things like that. And he came back with books and he was like, man, you'd love the library system down there. And I was like, yeah, it's a, it's a library system. Of course I'm going to love it. And he goes, nah, man, you would love it. And I was like, eh, yeah, it'll just be like any other. He's like, no, you really don't understand the way that information is distributed down there, man. You would love it. And then he got into this this reality that there are libraries and bookstores and publishers that really exist to distribute information that people in government and people who write legislation will need. And so when you walk into some of these bookstores, and again, not going to get too far into this, there are books that you will come across that you won't come across anywhere else in the United States unless you're in government. Because it's all stuff that people who write legislation are going to need. I'll give you a great example of this. I mentioned in, in some, long, uh, uh, some long ago episode, I think um, 2021 I, I talked about this, 2020 I might have talked about this, 2018 or 2019 I might have talked about this, but the um, United States um, Codes which most of us don't think about. Those codes are very important, especially when you're talking about writing legislation, because some of those codes deal directly with how you take legislation and policy and you turn it into administrative functions, not only for the federal government, but throughout the entire government, the, quote, administrative state structure throughout the country. And so... Understanding those codes, especially the ones that move policy to administrative functions, is massively important. This is why, this is why um, understanding Roosevelt via the team that he had around himself is sort of important. Because not only 
were they writing legislation and they were writing policies that would improve the lives of um, the citizens, they were writing them so that they could become functional parts of what we today call the administrative state. You and I, especially progressives, do not give enough time and energy to that portion of knowledge, policy, and administrative state functions. Conservatives, and you can look at Bannon and you can see where Bannon has understood this for decades. Remember I mentioned um, the uh, one book, War for Eternity? where it, it, it explains Bannon's mindset, uh, mindset. When you look at Roosevelt, you are seeing a man who was on the opposite end of where Bannon is. He understood that in order to change the country, you had to change the DNA. And what was the DNA? It was the administrative state. And what was the administrative state? It was the bureaucracy. And what was the bureaucracy? It was the actual people who did the day-to-day -day work of running the government. Most of these people are never elected. They're not... Um, they're not placed by uh, they're not placed in their positions by the administration they are just quote functionaries now for those of you old enough to know this th what i just went through the administrative state to the bureaucracy the bureaucracy to the functionaries if i was to then say to a lesser extent because this phrase has a number of different meanings, it is the functionaries to the technocrats. If you are old enough with conscious enough to remember this, you remember back in the 80s when they were talking about these three concepts. They were talking about the bureaucrats, they were talking about the functionaries, and they were talking about the technocrats. Like I said, different concepts, Different concepts, especially when you talk about technocrats. But they were talking about all these things in negative phrasing. Or with negative phrasing. But here's what they never told you. Here's what they never told you. Deep in the bowels of government, the bureaucrats make sure that the government functions. The functionaries make sure that the bureaucratic functions function. And the technocrats are all up in there making sure that everything that the bureaucrats and the functionaries need work. What happens if you corrupt the genetic material in a human body? You corrupt the body. You change the functions of the body. It could be good or it could be bad. Typically, it's bad. Well, what happens 
when you distort, manipulate, change, and rip out whole sections of the genetic material of the bureaucracy. You change the bureaucracy. FDR understood this and was going full throttle towards it. The New Deal, the New Deal in methodical fashion, sometimes, and non-methodical fashion, ripped out whole portions of the bureaucracy and built new ones. He restructured the genetic state of the United States. He restructured it all. And so, what most people, again, do not understand is the foundation for suburban life, the foundation for the GI Bill, the foundation for the interstate highway, the foundation for the small business administration expansion, which allowed hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people to start uh, uh, businesses who wouldn't have otherwise had the finances to do it. The foundation for the expansion of home ownership, especially among white folks. The, ex the, the foundation for the expansion of um, I was going to say big business, but it wasn't really big business. The expansion of medium businesses into places where they couldn't have gone before. All of that came from the work that FDR was doing. That was the New Deal. That was the New Deal. That was... The things that people took advantage of, particularly white folks, took advantage of from the late 40s through the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, that was all due to the New Deal. When Ronald Reagan talked about the, the, the bureaucrats so negatively, he was talking about the structures that were created by the New Deal and subsequent... and subsequent... Um, legislation that was meant to build off of the New Deal. He wanted to dismantle the New Deal, or at least parts of it, because I'm not sure if he understood half of the crap he wanted to really do because he was being handled. I mean, Bush 1 understood that portions of the New Deal should be dismantled, but Bush 1 wasn't crazy enough to say dismantle it all. Because he understood himself what was, what was prevented from happening by the New Deal coming into existence. But Ronald Reagan, with his handlers, knew what needed to, or should I say not, he knew it needed to be done. He was guided towards being what needed to be done. Deconstructing the New Deal. Uh, Clinton and the New Democrats, I mean, there is a book there that somebody has not written about the New Democrats. Because the New Democrats wore the neoliberal arm 
of this new capitalism that sought to destroy the New Deal. Neoliberalism and neoconservatism is linked. Never forget that. Never forget that. Neoconservatism, neoliberalism linked to this new form of capitalism that was dedicated to destroying the New Deal. And Clinton did part of that. Now, to kind of get a vision of the power that was going after the New Deal, I would encourage you definitely to read the book, if you really want to read it. But read the book, Mandate for Leadership. The first volume is really important. You can keep going. But the first volume is really important. The fourth volume is really important. Why? The first volume, put together again by the Heritage Foundation, lays out the strategy that is going to be implemented over the next several decades. The fourth book, the fourth book, comes out in 97, I believe, and that is important because it is the first volume released under um, a Republican-controlled house. And thus, when you read through it, first, it's, it's simplistic, like the average American could actually understand it. I don't know how many average Americans read it, but it was clearly written more in line for average American people to read it and to understand what was going on. I have to imagine, go pack GOPAC. I, I produced an episode on them. I actually have a part two of that episode, which I have to get out to you guys. Um, but I have to imagine go pack pushed a bunch of these out because it looks like a book that might have been associated with go pack. Um, the final final volume that came out for that was in 205, and it's a little thing. It's tiny compared to the other um, four. And uh, for me, it made a lot of sense because by that time, the Heritage Foundation had pretty much gotten everything that I wanted. I also think it's an amazing thing that it came out in 2005, if memory serves me correctly. It might have been 2006. But either way... It was one of those two years, and to me, that was kind of the last hurrah. That period of time was the last hurrah of neoconservatism. It was the last hurrah of neoconservatism, and at the end of that period of time, obviously, Bush got escorted out of the White House by Obama. The rise of the Tea Party came. The rise of the corporatist Republican Party came, and then Donald Trump came. And white nationalism became the, the rallying cry for the Republican Party. Neoconservatism, which began as opposition to the rights of other people back in, should I say, neoconservatism, which began as opposition to... Uh, the progression of America beyond this white nationalist framework back in the 1950s. 
returned to its original sources. It returned to its original sources. These are the people whom FDR was fighting in the 1930s. That fascistic element which would have had no problem taking the United States down a horrible pathway of fascism. Now, before I end this, I just want to stress again, America has a deep fascist history. America was fascist before. That was the late 1800s. That was post-Reconstruction into the 1900s. It was just the soft fascism that a lot of people didn't know existed because they weren't on the wrong side of it. But it was very fascistic. Roosevelt understood that if something did not change significantly, authoritarianism, which a lot of big businesses, a lot of monopolies were happy to have in the United States, would have become the dominant force moving American politics. And that would have destroyed the United States. There are people who I guarantee don't care that that would have destroyed the United States. But it would have. And considering authoritarianism led to massive extermination efforts in Germany, I fear what authoritarianism would have led to in the United States. Already in the South, white folks had moved towards killing hundreds of black folks in nighttime raids back in the 1920s, Red Summer. And they had proven to be devastatingly annihilistic in the years after that, whenever they wanted to be. So if America went authoritarian, it was likely that that authoritarianism was going to lead to drastic uh, or dramatic uh, annihilistic death when it came to black people, native indigenous people, Latino people. I want you to just sit with that for a moment. Because I think FDR knew that. He also understood prosperity could be a way to mitigate some of that. Well, he might have been a little bit naive. Because LBJ understood a lot better than he did. You could rob a white man blind by just telling him that he was better than them Negroes over there. <laughs> LBJ understood. Then again, LBJ was a racist too. And he was, he was okay with being a racist. So, you know, he understood how racism or race... Yeah, racism worked. I was going to say how racists worked. But he understood how racism worked. 
We need to understand ourselves. The citizenry has to understand wholeheartedly what the New Deal was about. In that way, getting behind the Green New Deal will become much easier. Because, see, once you understand what the New Deal was about and you understand why it was attacked, you understand that we need to rebuild it. We need to rebuild it. Some people say I'm a bit naive when it comes to this stuff. I should, uh... I keep thinking that one day I'm going to wake up and America's going to be saved or America's a, or Americans are going to get it. And that just is never going to happen. Maybe. I'll tell you this. I do this work not because I believe that's going to happen. I do it because when I sit down with my God, when I sit down with my ancestors, they say keep going. So I do. So I do. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, you can always reach out to me. Um, find me on radio, the number four, A-L-L dot net. Radio, the number four, A-L-L dot net. Uh, you can find episodes there where, you know, if you want to download them, you can download them there. Let me know that you're listening, guys. Let me know that you're listening, especially if you're on um, you're listening to this on some radio station, send me, it takes two seconds, go to radio, R-A-D-I-O, the number four, A-L-L dot N-E-T, type in Class War Battlefield, in the search box, it's on your right, hit enter, click one of the episodes, right there on the top, you'll see Contact Contributor, let me know that you're listening. Let me know where you hear me from. If you're listening to me on a radio station, let me know that. Because, one, I'd like to start shouting out more radio stations. Because y'all do me big, man. I love y'all. So, I want to be able to shout more of you out. Two, um, I want to know who's listening. You know, if you got questions, let me know. Send me, send me some pieces on it. I'd, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, Anyway, yeah, 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 let me know you're listening. Um, and if you can, drop a little bit of money, $2, $5, $10, $20, $30, $40, $50. Anything you could do, drop it, drop it, drop it, drop it. C-W-B podcast, C-W-B podcast, C-W-B podcast. Hit me up, Cash App. Hit me up, what's the other one? <laughs> PayPal, PayPal. And uh, let me know that you're listening. Drop me some change. Um, big up to Dr. Obert Shaka. Big up to the Remix Morning crew. Uh, I mix what I like. Black Power Media. Luke Monation. Um, Riot Starter TV. Um, who else I got? Who else I got? Karen Hunter. In Class with Carr. Roland Martin. Uh, the Lauren Burke show. I gotta get up on Lauren Burke show, man. I, I ain't I ain't actually listened to her. I just I listen to her on um Roland Martin. Um Reese, Reese, oh, man, ooh, Reese be Reese be going off on some folk boy. Mm, 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 mm. But you know what's funny about Reese? Reese is both bougie and ghetto. 
I never thought I'd meet a woman, a black woman at that, who could be both uh, uh, bougie and ghetto. But she bougie, but she ghetto too. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. Especially when she started going off. I had her, I played a clip of her on Roland Martin show uh, a couple of episodes back. Don't know when you guys are going to get this one, by the way. But, um, I know I'm missing some people here. Best of the Left Podcast, Sam Cedar, The Majority Report, um, Unbossed, Unbossed, uh, The Young Turk, uh, by the way, Jen Uger, man, I hope you really didn't get Young Turks from that old Republican group, man, that just like, uh, when I was reading through or listening to Rick Perlstein's book and he talked about the Young Turk Republicans, I was like, come on, tell me that that ain't where Jank Uger got that from, um, Man, who else I got on this list? Who else I got? Brad Friedman? Oh, man. One of the best in-your-face shows out there. Uh, and I know I'm, I'm missing people. God dang it. Countdown with Keith Oberman. Um, Midas Touch. Nicole Sandler. Um, mm. You know, that'll be it for right now. You know, I, I got to, like, put together a list or something so I can just start going through them. Anyway. Um, again, questions, comes concerns, you know, you can always reach out to me. If you can help out a little bit, y'all, $2, $4, $5, you know, and, you know, a couple bucks. Anyway, CWB Podcast, cash at me, PayPal me. I am your brother, Vyamir Ogaya. Vyamir Ogaya, yeah, that works. Vyamir Adis Ogaya. And I'm about to see y'all on the next one. Peace. I've been waiting for something to happen for a week or a month or a year. There's a shadow on the faces of the men who sent the guns to the wars that are fought in places where their business interest runs. On the radio talk shows and the TV, you hear one thing again and again. How the USA stands for freedom And we come to the aid of a friend But who are the ones that we call our friends? These governments killing their own Or the people who finally can't take anymore And they pick up a gun or a brick or a stone